Welcome back to Gold Ribbon Conversations, the podcast created to support families fighting childhood cancer in Ireland. Six children, adolescents and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every week in Ireland and the Gold Ribbon, which illuminates precious light, love, courage and compassion, is a symbol of strength and solidarity for each and every one. My name is Sinead O'Moore and it is my privilege to bring you this podcast on behalf of Childhood Cancer Ireland, a charity founded by and led by parents of children with cancer and survivors who know that one of the greatest sources of strength for this fight is conversation. Throughout this podcast, I talk to families impacted by childhood cancer, as well as the experts who care for our children's health, education and happiness. Yes, we talk about the fear and the pain, but we also talk about the hope and the friendship and the community that exists here because you are not alone. Childhood Cancer Ireland values every single donation while on its mission to help more children, adolescents and young adults survive cancer and thrive as adults and support all those dealing with the long-term effects of illness and trauma. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating €4 Euro or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. This episode discusses the loss of a child to cancer. While this conversation is essential for families who have experienced this grief, it may be understandably upsetting. And so we encourage you to protect your emotional well-being. If you have been impacted by the loss of a child, you will find information, resources and support at Anamkara, an organisation which supports parents after bereavement. They also have information for siblings, grandparents and other family members, which may be helpful. And you'll find a link in our show notes. Jack was a happy, healthy 10-year-old boy when his dad noticed his head was tilting to one side. Something so innocent quickly became the worst diagnosis a parent can hear. This episode is an act of courage as Sabrina, Jack's mother, talks to us about their short journey and of losing Jack to a rare and ultimately terminal brain cancer. This month marks one year since Sabrina, her husband, her family and the world lost their Jack. A little boy taken too soon and a family trying to carry on. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Gold Ribbon Conversations. This is going to be a difficult conversation. I think we can can agree. But... I want to thank you so much for agreeing to do this because I know in my heart you are going to absolutely support and help other families that are where you are at, which is in an unimaginable place. Um, take us back to when you had what you thought was a very ha- healthy child and that motherly instinct kicks in and you're like, something might not be right so um so I'm the mom of three boys and we have very busy normal house um very active boys and Jack uh, is our oldest boy um so the other two boys look up to him and follow him and follow his lead um during the summer of 2020 um you know at the end of the summer Shane had said to me my husband Shane he had said to me look I think 
Jack is holding his head a little bit to the side. Have you seen it? And I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Normally I'd see everything and I was like, no, no idea what you're talking about. So we did what, what we do and we, we kind of, you know, kind of had a look at him from a distance and, you know, you know, down the end of the kitchen or whatever, watching what he was doing. And then I saw it. It was very subtle turn of the head. He was kind of just turning his head a little bit, you know, to one side. You know, I asked him, I said, do you know what you're, do you, do you notice you're doing that? And he didn't notice, he didn't notice anything. He, he was absolutely fine. There was nothing going on. He was still playing all his sports. There was no illness, no sickness, no headaches, no nothing. Just a slight turn of the head. But over the few days, it got a little bit worse. And it, you could see it. And I, I spoke to my sister-in-law and I was like, do you see that? And she's like, yeah, I do actually see that. So what we decided to do was... We said, look, we'll, we'll just get checked out pretty fast because, you know, there's probably a lazy eye. It's probably a muscle thing. He might need glasses, something like that. So we went to the optician and we said, look, at, we, we, we think he's turning his head a little bit at the side. So she said, look, I'll have a look. She asked him a few questions. And one of the questions was, do you ever have double vision? And he said, yes. And she looked at me and I said, I didn't know that he had double vision. And she said, how when do you have it? And he goes, all the time. So he said he had double vision all the time. So... I didn't really know what to do with that information, but she said, look, at, he, he, he needs to see a doctor. So I said, fine. So we went off to the GP and the GP saw him and straight away the GP said, Jack's left eye is not turning left. Um, and I want you to go into A&E. So I remember looking at the doctor going, what? Is that not a bit excessive? And he said, no, you need to bring him into A&E. And then I got worried. So we went to A&E and it was during COVID and... We went to the children's ward, the children's A&E, and it was empty, which was great. But I knew I knew by the doctors and their behaviours, I knew that something was wrong. Um, and they wanted an MRI done. So the MRI was, you know, was scheduled and it took place pretty fast afterwards. And even the, the days between noticing and the days up to the MRI scan, I knew that something was wrong because it was getting worse. And in those days, it was getting worse. His head was turning an awful lot more. Um, I was a bit worried about the double vision side of things in school. I told the school that he had double vision just in case something happened in the playground um, and just for his positioning in school where he was sitting. But he was happy, not a bother. He was absolutely fine. Um, the MRI results, um, they said, we didn't have an appointment after the MRI and they said to me look at you know you don't have an appointment the doctors will call you if there's anything and I said well I'm not really kind of happy I'd like to stay and just see if the doctor would have a look or one of the doctors might have a look at the, at the results so they asked us to go into a room and we went into a room and we waited for a few moments and about a half an hour later they said the doctor wants to see you and they brought us down to the room and they asked Jack to step out and three doctors came in and she just came up real close to me into my face and she said I have bad news Jack has a tumour in his deep inside his brain and he needs to go to Temple Street today. So, you know, I thought, okay, it's, you know, she's overreacting. It's probably the size of a pea. It's probably really just sitting on something. We can get it out. She's overreacting. But I was very scared. And I knew the way she was talking to me, that she was in my, in my face, in my eyes. And I knew she was telling me something bad. But I was like, no, it's okay. It's like it's just probably the size of a pea now. It'll be a whole, whole blue about nothing. It'll be fine. So they wouldn't leave, let us leave the hospital. We had to go to Temple Street that day. So um, we went to 
I remember Shane had come in, so we had actually two cars in there and Shane had come in and I, I just got this awful motherly instinct. I needed to go home. I need to go home and get the clothes. I need to sort the boys out. I need to make the dinner. Just the normal stuff, the weird stuff that you just go into that kind of mode. And off we went. Anyway, I came home. The call came in. The bed was available. We were going to Dublin. Um, I got the boys sorted and everything. And then Jack came home with Shane and we told the boys we were going to Dublin. Jack was super excited. Like, I'm going to Dublin to a specialist children's hospital with mom and dad, just the three of us. Um, he was so excited. It was unbelievable. I was inside, I was screaming and he was just full of chat, talked the whole way to Dublin, got to Dublin, got um, admitted and into his bed, put on his pyjamas and realised he had a television to himself that he could move on a movable arm and bring down in front of him and position it. We have so many photos of that few moments in that bed and he's so excited to be there. You know, he was just amazing. <laughs> But the next morning, the doctors came in at half 10. I'll never forget it. It was really early. And I don't know why, but you kind of you kind of think that the doctors are really busy and they won't come to you for ages and all of that sort of stuff that you'll be waiting all day long now before you hear from anyone. But they came in at half 10 and they said, hi, Jack, how are you? Mom and dad, can we talk to you? So a place specialist sat with Jack and they brought us off into a room you know, a team of doctors and support people. And, you know, in one way, you are privileged to be in this country, to be Irish, to have, and I know we have the best pediatric teams in the, in the world. And we were privileged to be there with them at that time. But, but what they said was so bad. What they told us, it was bad news. And they told us straight away, they were sure they'd seen it before. They didn't need any second opinions. Mm. They were sure. Our child had cancer and, and it was significant. To hear that your child has cancer is like the worst thing that you will ever hear about your child or so we thought. But what they said next, I'll never, I'll never get over what they said next. It crushed me beyond anything you can ever understand. But they checked with us and they said, do you understand what we're saying? And we did, we heard, them. We heard what they said. Jack, when we got back to Jack, we had to pick ourselves up and get back into Jack. And Jack was like, where were you? What took you so long? I was like, oh, look, Jack, I had loads of questions for the doctors. You know me, I have loads of questions for the doctors. And I was red faced and raw. And they said, look, take him out, bring him out downtown, you know, bring him down to the, the shops and do what you want to do. I remember trying to put cream on my face because I was so raw from the tears and the crying. And this nurse was standing beside me and she started to cry because she knew what was happening. She could see me trying to pull myself together and I couldn't, but we did. And we got Jack and we brought him downtown and we held each hand and we went in shopping and we got him his first pair of Converse. So cool, he loved them. The coolest shoes, the big smile on his face. 
we went for a walk around some of the parks and we bought sweets and we headed back to Crumlin or to Temple Street. Sorry, we headed back to Temple Street for the journey. What was to happen? So this, I'm listening to you. And as a mother, I'm still in the opticians. <laughs> yeah, it happened that fast. The, the sequence of, you know, optician to A&E, straight up to Dublin. And then to immediately be told your child has cancer. Yeah. From that meeting to going downtown, to buying the, the lovely new runners, to coming back up, Shane and I still hadn't, we were looking at each other, but we still hadn't talked. Mm. So the wonderful staff in Temple Street, they like, look, take some time. We'll sit with Jack. You know, we'll, we'll have a chat with Jack. We'll sit with him and play with him. This was before his biopsy. So he was perfectly well, absolutely really well, not a problem with him. So Shane and I agreed that it was too hard to comprehend what they had said and that, and therefore, because it was too hard to comprehend ourselves that we couldn't tell anyone else because we couldn't we couldn't help them because we couldn't help ourselves right now so we agreed on holding off telling anyone until they confirmed the biopsy results which they told us it might take a week for the results to come through but they were pretty sure and the, the biopsy was just to confirm it but we used that time to try and process this between ourselves myself and Shane so we just told our grandparents and our aunties and uncles and our friends that Jack was very sick and it was very serious okay. and that we would know more after the biopsy results. We also had to tell Jack mm. and we had to tell his brothers and we didn't know what to tell them. We had just received the most horrific news and we didn't know what to tell anyone. And Jack was a wonderful 10 year old boy and he could read a situation very, very well. He was 10, he wasn't a young baby that we could talk over his head, he was 10. And he was very mature and he was wonderful and he, he would understand. So we had to be very careful of what we were going to tell him, what questions he might have, and that we were able to handle it and that he would be able to handle it, that it would be appropriate for his age. We were so scared, beyond reason, we were so scared. Jack went for another scan that day when we got him back, he was due his biopsy the very next day. So that evening they wanted to do another scan just for placement and biopsy procedures, etc. And Shane and I had agreed that we wouldn't tell anyone that we just weren't able. But while I waited for Jack in the scanner, my brother rang me and he said, he said, Sabrina, what's going on? And I just, I just didn't know what to say to him. And I just said, we have the fight of our lives on our hands. So my immediate reaction was to fight. Mm. We have to fight for him. And he said, can I help you? And I said, yes. And he he said, I, I want to start the fight. Okay, so tell me what it is. So I told him what it was. With all the warnings, I told him what it was. And he said, I'm going to start. Let's start this. And like he's, he's still helping us today, you know, this fight. Because it, it goes on, you know. So... You just you just can't process it because you're living your life and it's under the surface but you can't let it out you have to you have to you have to be there for jack and the boys 
You have to be there for Shane. You have to be there for everyone and your family. So we had to not tell anyone because we didn't understand it ourselves. We had to give ourselves the time to, to get to grips with it. It took us a long time to tell people. And in fact, we didn't tell most people. We told our immediate families only because we totally respected Jack. Mm. It was Jack's illness. It wasn't mine. It wasn't Shane's. It was Jack's illness. And above anyone, he needed to know what he needed to know. So we only ever told people aspects of his illness that he knew about. Jack knew he had cancer when we, we told him, you know, and he knew he had a tumour in his brain. He knew that. He knew his diagnosis and he bore his illness so bravely. That's what he knew. That's what he wanted to know. He knew everything he wanted to know. Everything he asked, he was provided the information in his in the way he needed to hear it. Mm. And that's what he knew. He knew his diagnosis. But his prognosis was borne by Shane and I. He didn't want to know his prognosis. He didn't even consider it, that it was a thing, which was wonderful because he was so happy. And I'm, you know, I, the respect for Jack for that was just, is just incredible, you know. How did he react or did he understand cancer? So initially he was, before we left Temple Street, like Jack had his biopsy and we had to tell him that we told him, like we told him very literally what was happening. So you need to have a biopsy because they want to just take a sample of the lump that's growing there in your brain and they want to see what's in it. So that's exactly what was happening. And that's what he was told. And he was accepting of that. Jack was very sick after his biopsy. Very, very sick. They thought he'd actually go home straight away, but he was so ill. I thought he'd had stroke. I thought he'd, I asked him a number of times as he had a stroke because he had developed left facial palsy. His left eye turned into his nose. He couldn't open his mouth. His hearing was so severely sensitive. He could hear things in the corridors and he couldn't walk. So he was very ill for that week from being a very happy, not a thing wrong to being very, very ill at the next moment. He, um, were you, were you prepared for that at all or did you just think this no. is a routine little obviously it's not little it's 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 a biopsy in his brain but were you prepared for for that so so you were told the risks and you signed the forms mm. but but you know and things can go wrong but typically things go very well and that you know it will go well it's literally a, a very small needle and it will be fine and he'll be fine and he'll probably go home at the weekend no, I wasn't prepared. And, and, you know, it was a sign of what may be coming down the line as well. And he returned from a very healthy boy to a very, very sick boy who couldn't even walk, couldn't open his mouth properly. No, I wasn't prepared for that. And did it reverse? Did, it, did, it, did he begin to get that control and power back? So over the course of the week, Jack really learned how to walk. Um, he came home in a wheelchair, but he was able to walk with us and we used to use the wheelchair around the house and stuff like that, but if we had to go out, but he was able to, I remember him learning, relearning to walk like a child across the kitchen table, you know, holding onto the table and then letting go for the last little bit. So he had to relearn to walk. He had to really, he had to learn how to um, open the, his opening, his mouth opening. So he had to practice with sticks to um, stretch his jaws 
the hearing subsided, the, the sensitivity to the hearing subsided, and uh, the left facial palsy never never corrected. Um, you know, he had left facial palsy for the for the rest of his life after that. And with the knowledge of what was to come, was there a treatment plan? So, so on that day they told us, you know, what's worse than cancer. And then when we when we left Temple Street, we were we were transferred to the care of Crumlin, and we met. This was like our last day before we came home from Temple Street. We we met with our oncologist consultant and her team in Crumlin. And um, I knew straight away when I, we were in there that she was searching my face and Shane's face for an understanding of what was going on here. I knew it. I knew it by her. And they said that Jack would receive her actions of radiotherapy. And that was it. So there was no team swooping in. There was no admission to St. John's Ward. And, and there, there simply was no medicine. St. John's Ward in Dublin, everyone knows what that means. I desperately wanted to bring him in there because St. John's Ward means there's treatment and there's hope and there's an opportunity to fight. I wished so hard that there was medicine for Jack. I wanted hope from the medical team and all Jack needed was a chance and we would, we would have given it everything we have to make it work. And surely in this day and age, there was going to be something, but the news was always the same. Sorry, no, not for Jack. Jack has the devastating disease for which there is no treatment. How were we ever going to tell Jack and his brothers and his grandparents, his uncles, his aunts, his cousins, his friends, how were we ever going to tell them? But this is what they were telling us. So, like that was very hard to take. Uh, I mean, it still bothers me so bad. It was so hard to take. So you fight. So you come out and you go, they're saying there's nothing, so we're going to fight. My brother had already started, so he and I researched. I researched every night when everyone was asleep. I spent all night searching, searching. I don't know when he searched. I don't know when he got the time to do it, but he did. We would chat regularly and we'd compare and contrast what we had found. We would prepare questions for the oncologists, for the radiologists, for pathology results. We were looking for those. We'd discuss questions for Jack's GP. We, we discussed discussion groups that we did. And I joined some groups of people who were suffering from the same. I reached out and I found a family in Dublin who had suffered the same childhood cancer. And whilst we've never actually met them, they were just there, they just listened. They just reassured um, another brother of mine, actually, he, he, he was able to put us in contact with a family in the US as part of our research. And we chatted with them and through them, we got talking to a doctor for a second opinion. And um, his opinion only reaffirmed the first opinions from the doctors. And then came 
I suppose it's hard to just, it's hard to put words on it, but I suppose the true moments of understanding of his diagnosis. The doctors had sent us home. But we had to find out the true understanding ourselves. You know, to any parent, I suppose the prognosis of what they were saying was just unacceptable. And you have to you have to fight, you have to find out. Um and what we did find out was across the world, we really, you know, with everything that's available or not available, we had really only two options. The first option was that we could go to America and find a hospital um, that was doing trials for this disease. And there were there were trials going ahead in America. So it was a plausible, a plausible option. And the second option then was to just to just listen to the doctors and hear what they have said and to let Jack live his life with us, safeguarding him, however long his life, to let him live his life and us safeguard that. That decision process between the two was so, so difficult. You know, um, what going to America, what did it actually mean? We would have had to succumb to it a pharmaceutical trial and all the side effects of that and all the side effects that we would have had on Jack. But every fiber of me, I wanted to go. I wanted to give him the chance. I wanted any chance. If there was any chance, I wanted to go. But there was no chance. All of the children that were on these trials they had the same prognosis as Jack. Second option then was, we're going to continue our research here and safeguard Jack's quality of life for the whole of his life. So anything that was to be done with Jack in terms of his care, it would be only to give him a positive effect and anything that potentially negative, anything that could potentially negatively impact on the quality of his life, well then that would not be allowed. So we chose quality of life for Jack. Sometimes this makes me cry so hard that I had to choose it. I would have given my right arm and my leg and anything else, I would have traveled the world 10 times over, as would everyone we know would have done the same for Jack. Everyone wanted him to get better. Everyone wanted to fix this, but none of the children with Jack's illness ever got better. This is what we were told. And this is what our research told us. Safeguarding his life is a lovely way to, when you said it, I felt it's like a little bit of power comes back to you the mother, the parent, safeguarding our children's happiness, our children's quality of life, our children's education, our children's friendships, our children's memories, and the family and the connection that they have with their siblings for as long as we can. An impossible, 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 impossible choice you had to make 
I'm not sure when this came to me or what it is that made me realize why it is that we are qualified to do this. Yeah. We're Jack's parents and we're experts in Jack. All of us are experts in our children. Yeah. We are the best placed and the most knowledgeable in terms of the quality of their lives. We never think of it like this, but that's who we are. You know, we, when all the research was done and all the data was collected and it was telling us exactly what the doctors had told us. You know, we, I didn't have, and we didn't have the capacity to become cancer experts anymore. I was run ragged trying to research at night, you know, and we had come to the exact same conclusion as they had come to. You know, we decided that we, we would trust in them. And, and, you know, I even went so far as I met with the oncologist and I said to her, I am entrusting Jack's medical care to you. You must continue the research. You must continue the research and find something for Jack. If there's something to be found, you will find it. I will look after the quality of his life. I will tell you how he's doing. I will tell you if there's any change. I will look after that. But you continue the research. She, she just totally embraced me on that and thanked me for, for that. But it took us a while to get there. And, yeah. and it's the right thing to do you know, for us. We had to do the fight. We had to put up the good fight and we did it. You know, I'm, I'm so proud of Shane because, you know, all he had to go through losing his son and he desperately wanted to fix this because in our house, Shane fixes everything. <laughs> you know, dad, dad, will you fix this? Dad, will you help with that? Even me, I, you know, I, I run everything by Shane. What will I do with this? Or what will I do with that? Or whatever. And he desperately wanted to fix this. And the research side of things is not his forte, but he was able to sit and to listen to me and to take in the conclusions that I had come to on what information I'd found. He was able to trust me, even though I was breaking his heart. And Shane decided that he only wanted quality of life for Jack, as did I. But this was so hard at times when I was on my own. It used to crush me that who was I to bring these conclusions to my husband and to break his heart? Who was I? But like you said, like we said, we are experts in our children. And we know, we know what we want for them. Who are it's you? So traumatic. You, you are you you are their mother, you know. And you are coming with these conclusions because of all of the medical information that has been given you. You're coming with these conclusions because of what you have been assured and told and in your soul and in your heart you've listened. And you've looked at your son and you're going to protect him the only way you can. The only way yeah. you can protect him yeah. is by safeguarding his life, his quality of life. Yeah. So there was, there was no medicine for Jack. So there was no intervention. There was no immunocompromised situations. 
no secondary illnesses as a result of his diagnosis. Yeah. And because we didn't need medication or anything like that, Jack was very well. He lived out his life, you know, safe and happy in the care of us, his family and his aunties and uncles and grandparents, his friends, his school, his, our community. You know, he we gave him the best quality life we could. All of us, all of those people I mentioned, we all gave him the best quality of life that we could have. He was a normal 10-year-old boy who wished for normal 10, 11-year-old boy things. You know, we did everything to give him the best quality of life. However, that would, however long that would be, and no one gave up. No one gave up helping us. You know, I, I believe, I really believe, in Jack's case, a choosing quality actually maximised the extent of his life. Yeah. You know, he was so happy. Even on his last day, he was sitting on his last day. He was sitting watching YouTube. <laughs> And he pointed to me and his nurse and he said, you know, he couldn't talk at this point, but he pointed to us to look at the funny things he was watching. You know, and then he had a little turn. You know, you know, Jack was aware of all he was going through. You know, he lived it. He lived it every day. He was the person with the cancer and he lived it every day. And for every knock he got, you know, he just picked himself up and, and we all relied on our collective abilities to to find workarounds, you know, so that he could do what he loved to do. So for example, gaming, I mean, he was passionate about gaming and, and you know, he, he taught his brothers to love it too. And we did everything we could with the wonderful help of charities and everything to get him doing what he loved to do and continue doing and getting workarounds because the neurological deficits were, were occurring and he was, you know, he was being affected in that way only. But we were able to get workarounds so he was able to live his life, you know. And stay in school. And stay in school. So Jack loved school and school is amazing. Um, it was his happy place and he tried everything to be in school. And it's actually, um, tomorrow is the one year anniversary of his last day at school. Where he dressed up with his wonderful SNA Mary and he was in a wheelchair and you know Jack was an honorary guard also. And Shane did up his wheelchair like late into the night and Jack was so brilliant. He was like, no, dad, I need something else. I need the wheels need to be done this way or that way. And he was so he was so alive. And that was his last day and he won the best dressed competition with his SNA. She dressed as a an inmate. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful, but it was his last day. You know, I'm so proud of Jack. I'm so proud of his dad. I'm so proud of his brothers. I'm so grateful for our family and friends in the school and, and then of course all the charities and all the all they did for us and still do for us. And Jack loved all his charities. He loved them all so much and he was so grateful for their kindness and their generosity. His little face when he when he received something, oh, he was just so thankful for everything. You got to make wonderful memories. Yeah. And, you know, Jack was sick during COVID and as are a lot of people. But Jack, I suppose Jack was well, you know, he was having de neurological deficits were occurring for him, but he was he was very well and able to live his life. But COVID came and around that Christmas time, it kind of exploded, I think. And, you know, after Christmas, we were all faced with five kilometer rule. 
but what it did for people like us is we we didn't know anyone with cancer because we weren't in St John's wards we were kind of on our own in that regard we had a Shane and I knew we had our prognosis no one else knew that none of the kids knew that but and then we had um because of COVID no one was allowed to visit so nobody could come and we couldn't go anywhere because of the five kilometer rule it was that I'll never forget that January February and I think it was the time I contacted the Childhood Cancer Foundation in Ireland and Mary Claire just embraced us and she just helped me in ways that I wasn't able to help myself yeah. and she just got me in contact with people and charities are amazing because they have these very special ways of if they can't see you or you can't get to them or they can't get to you that they still have ways of brightening your life and thanks to Mary Claire and she was able to show me that there were, there is help and that they, people want to help us but it was very difficult it was very difficult the to isolation. have that the isolation was horrific and we had like Galway Hospice were amazing and we're, they're just amazing but they were limited too in what they could do for us and and they did everything for us but you know it was COVID, COVID just put that complexity on a situation where if you had such devastating news you'd, and everyone was well that you would pack up and you would just go but sometimes we couldn't do that sometimes we had to stay here but maybe that was like the walls were closing in I think I think it was a problem more for me than for anyone else you know the children were fine and but it was it was hard for me but with the help when I when I when the help was offered and when I asked for help it came in abundance and I remember saying that ordinary people with extraordinary empathy yeah all the stops were pulled out and we just had wonderful times with Jack just wonderful times with Jack and and we were lucky you know we were lucky that we had all that time and he was so well Jack was really only unwell from this time last year uh, you know for the last month of his life he was only very unwell otherwise he was very well very happy you know doing his thing loving his gaming chatting with his aunties and uncles and visitors and charities very happy boy school oh my gosh school he loves school this christmas you can dedicate a message of remembrance or hope for our childhood cancer heroes by supporting our gold ribbon tree please join us in remembering our loved ones who were taken too soon or send a message of love and hope to families who are still fighting and survivors who are dealing with the long-term effects of treatment. You can get in touch by visiting goldribbontree.ie today. And of course, you also, throughout this, are trying to protect and safeguard the happiness yeah. of your other two sons. Yeah. No doubt they were aware and seeing the neurological deficits as they occurred for their yeah. brother. How old were they? So or how old um, are they? So they're they're ten and seven now, and they were nine and six yeah. at the time. 
and you know Ethan is Ethan was nine he's ten now he was he and Jack there was only two years between them in age but there was only one year between them in school so they were very very close um and Caelan then was the baby so he, he was he was following suit and trying to learn his way and I'll never forget them teaching him how to play computer games. And I was like, oh, my God, this child is only five and they're teaching him how to play computer games. But, um, you know, they I remember this, this is a hard thing to even say, but I remember one day Caelan said, mommy, we're rich. And I said, what? And he goes, mommy, we are rich. Like we're, we're going away with Jack. Uh, I think we were going to Daisy Lodge in County Down, which is a um, cancer um, foundation for children, you know, respite. And he goes, Mom, we are rich. We're getting to go here and no one gets to go anywhere else because of COVID. And the irony of it was just heartbreaking. But but the children make you laugh and they make you smile. And, and we lived every day with those children. So, you know, they brought us through. They brought us through because we had to push away a lot of what we were dealing with we had to push that away so that we could live our lives and live with them and you know they've had they've received so much care from the hospice the boys they've received so much social work care and putting words on feelings and things like that um, and we we built on that and I've always wanted their emotional needs um managed you know I always wanted them to be looked after emotionally and so I'm very open to all of that and and I keep a close eye and sometimes I'm told like oh don't be too don't be keeping too much of a close eye on them but I keep a close eye and we're very open to all sorts of help in that regard and we take any help we can in that regard so we have we have wonderful care in terms of the Galway Hospice and the social work that they do there um and they have they prepare the boys without the boys even realizing what was coming because again it was Jack's prognosis and Jack didn't ask, so no one else knew. And the boys didn't know, and you know, they didn't know until that day that Jack would pass away, you know. And um, but they were prepared, and I saw them and I watched them, and people commented on them and how brave they were and how they accepting they were in ways and how they helped people around the time of the funeral. And, you know, they asked people, if you had Jack for a few more minutes, what would you say? And they got them to write it down. And even the adults were kind of looking at the children. But it got them, the adults thinking about what would they say to Jack if they had him for another five minutes? And they all commented on it afterwards, how therapeutic it was and how special it was that it was coming directly from the children. Um, you know, we talk about Jack a lot in this house. <laughs> We talk about Jack all the time, in fact, and sometimes when the children come with a story, you know, I will I will intently listen because they have more stories than I have because they were they slept in the same room and they went to school together and they had all the crack together. And I listen to the stories and, and I get them to repeat it again. And I say, well, tell me again and tell me, tell me where you were and what did it look like? And I'm just trying to get them to remember and to and to set the scene and to get the picture in their heads so that they remember and they have such funny stories and I love it and I will shush everyone else up so that I can listen to the, someone says do you remember when Jack or do you remember we did this with Jack you know he was very special and he, you know he he had lots of friends and he was he he loved all his cousins and especially his younger cousins they um 
they were drawn to him because he was so good to them. And you'd notice even if he, we were going to visit, as soon as the door would open, they'd all be looking for Jack straight away because he just loved them and cared for them and played with them. And he was very special. He sounds incredible. Yeah. So, you know, we, in terms of the care for the boys, I'm very aware that they have lost their big brother. Sometimes I look at them and I go, aren't you really understand what's ever happening here? But they are living their lives. They're loving school. They're very well supported. Sometimes, sometimes someone will come downstairs at night and be upset and that's okay. We allow all of that. Get all the cuddles going and reassurance. And then, you know, I'm sure sometime in the future it'll come again, but we're a very open family and we like to talk about how we feel about things like that. And, you know, we... We want to keep Jack alive in that way and it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be happy. It's not okay what happened, but it's okay to be okay. And it's okay to be sad. And your own emotional support? So, um, Mary Claire again from um, Childhood Cancer Ireland. She was amazing and she suggested um, many charities, but one of them was Cancer Care West and psychological help there. And so I, I have a counselor there and I, I met with her over the phone um, during COVID, halfway through Jack's illness. So I, I began the relationship with her in terms of counseling and help. And she's been with me since. So it's needed. I don't know how for how much longer it's needed, but time is not an issue. Yeah. What's, what is, is to get help. Um, so she's been with me through it all. So I, you know, and again, another charity. It's just incredible what people do. It's just incredible. We don't know what's needed until you're in it. Yeah. And what I have learned from hosting this and, and working with Childhood Cancer Ireland is the extent to which all of these strangers just come into our worlds and do something we never thought we needed. Yeah. I, I mean, I am forever indebted to all of our wonderful charities. I call them our charities because they are ours. Um, but, but I suppose, you know, for us, it was a very unique situation and we were sent home and we were at home and COVID happened. And I got very upset that February because I thought, oh my God, we're living here. We can't go outside the door. Nobody can come to us. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I just felt it was a time bomb going off. And I reached out and for some reason I reached out to Mary Claire and and, and only for her, you know, I didn't know half of that stuff was available because if you remember, we weren't part of a community. We and like I said, nobody wants to be part of the St. John's Ward community, but sometimes you do. 
Sometimes when you have nothing else, that's what you want. Yeah. And I've no doubt it's horrific up there. I've no doubt about it. But I wanted it. I wanted the medical hope for Jack and I suppose we would have probably learned more about the supports that would have been there for us. But because we were at home and our situation was so unique. But it came good. <laughs> Very clear helped us so much and still helps us today. And you are now being part of that help for others. Yeah. Because by being so generous, by sharing your story, which I know is not easy to come on and speak and to revisit it all. But by doing it and by sharing it and by being part of this podcast, there will be some mother, some parent, some aunt, some friend, some father, some sibling, somewhere listening who feels as alone as you did. And my takeaway from listening to you is that there is help through these charities. That they, they know this world far more than any parent who's entering it. Childhood Cancer Ireland is set up by parents who have who have had to have this fight for their own children, who know it and are trying to do something in their power to support the parents coming behind them. And you're part of that now. You've already started that by being on this podcast, by, by sharing your story. You've already started to help. Yeah. You know, when I, when I said that I would do this, I wanted to make sure that I had a message because it's not about me or anything, but it is about all those people who are suffering because there's childhood cancer in their home. And I really want to be able to say something that will help others. And I would really like for our experience to have that tangible peace that people can embrace and build on, you know. Um, we know that every case of childhood cancer is unique. These children need an expert to act and care for the child. They need experts to be able to make everyday decisions on behalf of that child. But what parents sometimes don't realize is that they are the experts on their own child and that as such, they are fit and they are capable and they are best placed to make the most dif difficult of decisions when they are needed to be made. You know, for all parents, trust yourself. Know your own expertise on your child. Rely heavily on the doctors because they, in this country, are the best. We have the best pediatric care. So rely on your doctors. But when it comes to living, when it 
comes to living, trust yourself for you do know what's best. You know, and lean on all the support. Lean on all that support that you can. Because this is your family's time to take back. This is your family's time to live. You are the expert of your child. Yes. We are all the experts of our child. And we all need to trust that we are here to safeguard their futures and their presence. Sabrina, I really, I started by thanking you for joining me. I'm ending it by thanking you for joining me. An unimaginable story, but it is the one that you've lived. I hope that no other parent ever has to live it, but I know that they will. And your advice and support and words of encouragement today will have helped. And I, I really, I really mean this. Just, just thank you. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for telling us about Jack. Thanks, Jean. Thank you for listening to this Gold Ribbon Conversation. There are more Gold Ribbon stories written by those fighting childhood cancer on our website, childhoodcancer.ie, and you'll find a link in our show notes. If you can, we would love you to share this podcast across social media using hashtag Gold Ribbon Conversations as it can help more families to discover this show. This podcast was produced by The Brand Story for Childhood Cancer Ireland, hosted by Sinead O'Moore and sound production by Alan Breslin.